Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Lancaster, Dr. Pendle, Dr. Lubers. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Brad. Morning. Morning, Brad. Happy to have you with us and happy to have you with us listening as well. And as always, we're happy to get some of those listener questions. And we've got a couple to talk about today that we're going to talk a little bit about cover crops and some of the economics of raising those, as well as controlling some of those things in pastures like old world blue stem. We'll also touch on raising heifers. And if we're raising heifers for breeding, what do we need to think about at this time of year? As well as we know calves are coming and we've talked a little bit about preparing for that. We're gonna discuss, and Dr. Luber is gonna lead us down, how we assess dehydration and maybe when to make some decisions on what to do differently with those calves. Before we get into those topics, hopefully everybody's making it through the winter. I know the country has had storms on and off across and hopefully everybody is making it through that okay. It makes it hard to get out and check the cows. And one of the things that came across my desk recently was looking at different technologies that can be used to track. And one of them was using satellites to track cows and where they are in different pastures. And I wanted to get you guys thoughts What's the utility of a technology like that if we can get it to work? You know, one of the things I thought of, Brad, if, if I got large pastures and, and I can use something like that to identify where cattle are spending more of their time or most of their time, it might help me design um, management options to spread those cattle out and improve the grazing distribution in a large pasture, um, or maybe even without having to spend the money on cross fencing and those kind of things. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I don't know how far along that technology is, but I mean, I think it's reasonable and, and certainly have, have talked to several people that are using drones to do similar things. So I think there's a couple of different options for people out there if, if they are having trouble getting out and whether that's a, a distance thing or a weather thing. Your yeah, point, Brian. So it doesn't have to be that exact technology to have some way of remote monitoring where are the cows. And if I just need to check them, once a day or once every other day, a drone might work fine. No, don't really have much to add more than what Brian Phillips said. I you know, grew up in Illinois. I didn't, wasn't necessarily around large, like maybe large pastures, maybe like the experience in the West, Western United States. And so that, that was my initial thought. What Phillips said was the West being able to track your herds and, and, and possible other things as well. And depending on how it works, you know, traceability, and we've all worked with, U.S. Cattle Trace Program and traceability is a really important aspect as well, continues to be important in the industry. And maybe there's technologies that'll help make that a little bit, a little bit easier. So I did want to, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. And I wanted to talk some about, we had a really good listener question and the, and the question was related to, and, and Philip and Dustin, this is right up your alley, because there are actually two questions. One on, talk, talk through some of the benefits of cover crops to both the farmer and the rancher. And then two, what's a fair rate and how do we how do we figure out who's responsible for what in that scenario? So Philip, you want to start us off with talking a little bit about some of those benefits of cover crops? A couple of different things. <clears throat> the, the main benefit or the reason for planting the cover crop is to help to capture nutrients that don't leach out through the winter or during that fallow period. And we lose those nutrients out of the soil, like excess nitrogen that might still be there. Um, it also helps protect that soil and cover from erosion during the uh, off season. Um, but then a big one is it, it, it improves the organic matter, increases the organic matter in that soil, which increases water holding capacity, 
improves biological nitrogen breakdown and the nitrogen cycle and just makes that soil more productive and more fertile. So those are a lot of the improvements or the benefits for the farmer, but obviously it's a cost. There's a cost to planting that. And so you've got to have some way to overcome that cost. And to me, one of the best ways to try to overcome that cost is to graze it. Use it for some feed to, to turn into profit in the form of cattle. And so the rancher can, can, be, can gain a lot of benefit from that and offset some of the cost for the farmer of planting that cover crop. And usually those cover crops are really high quality or high nutritional value. And so they can be used strategically in different situations. Um, you know, particularly maybe in the early spring, I got an early spring calving herd and I need a high quality feed for those early lactation cows. And that, would, that works really well. Um, maybe I need to, to use it in the fall to grow my replacement heifers more cheaply. And so that becomes a, a really good source of a high nutritious feed for those replacement heifers. So think about ways to use that to match the nutrient requirements of the cow to even get more benefits out of it. The only thing I'd like to add to Phillip's uh, discussion about the benefits, I'm glad he mentioned the word cost because uh, anytime you have benefits, there's probably some associated costs as well. He talked about the inputs, the cost of the input, maybe the seed and uh, planting it, but there's also costs of just you know, learning and understanding which varieties work, which varieties don't. So the educational component, I think, for the farmer. Uh, and then also probably both the ranch and the farmer, a cost of them would be, uh, you know, monitoring it, right, as you're, as throughout the growing process, but also through the grazing process as well. And so there's some additional costs, I think, that they both need to be aware of. And then from a rancher standpoint, some additional costs, you know, fencing, water, labor, you're going to have additional supplement, some feeding. So there's, there's additional costs that, that, that you need to be aware of as well. Um, one, go ahead. One thing I just thought of too, from a, a benefit standpoint from grazing, the, the, the turnover of the nutrients in that cover crop as it passes through the cow and then manure coming back out improves that nutrient cycle. And so that can actually be a benefit to the farmer of, of grazing process to improve the fertility of that soil for the farmer. Yeah, no, that's another good point. Brad, I think you also asked about the fair rate or what's the rate, who's, you know, how much you got to pay for this? Yep. Was that another question? Uh, I think you and used the word fair, and I like that word, you know, because they're really trying to figure out what's the fair rate, both to the producer or to the farmer and the rancher. Uh, I went out and tried to do some quick searching for, you know, rates. Um, and as you can probably guess, there isn't one rate fits all. Uh, in fact, I really couldn't see very many rates. I couldn't figure out what, what I did come across are types of arrangements on how uh, the farmer and rancher might come together and figure out what is that fair, uh, fair payment. And so some people might use a pasture rent some might talk about, uh, some could use just a grazing, like a contract grazing. So think of a flat rate, it's paid by an animal per month or per day. Uh, some use a per pound, uh, and some could just come back to the resource sharing, you know, figure out what all the revenues are, figure out what all the costs are, and just figure out some fair payment, uh, how much, 
how much each one's going to contribute and what that how that profit's going to be split between the two parties. Uh, so those are just some things, I guess, when you're thinking about what the fair rate is, is ways that you might uh, come about trying to arrive at that value. Hey, Dustin, I got a question for yep. you. That, you know, if we're thinking about, you know, the, the cover crops and improving the soil and this is the, the carbon sequestration and sustainability aspect of this, are there some benefits or financial benefits or incentives for either the farmer or the rancher from the carbon credit market or something like that? So the carbon credit market, that's a good question. I, you know, that's starting to come up. People start to talk about it a lot right now. Everything that I've read is mostly on from a crop side, you know, no-till, switching from conventional till to no-till or continuing to no-till, some kind of reduced tillage system. What I haven't seen uh, in the news or discussion, and that's maybe I just haven't read everything, is pastures or from a livestock side. So I, I don't know if there's anything on the table right now in discussion in terms of uh, carbon sequestration, carbon credits from a pasture uh, standpoint. That's good. I think that's a good point and something worth looking into because some of those are based on improvement. And with cover crops compared to barren ground, it's easy to document your improvement based on previous research as far as what you're going to sequester and what you're going to keep there little bit tougher on the grazing land. So we'll keep you apprised of that as we learn more information on cover crops. Certainly a good question. And, and Dustin, you've got some information there on how to calculate those rates that we'll put in the show notes. I think that'll be a great resource for people to, if you're thinking about how to do it, because just as you alluded to, there's no one rate. There's so many different cover crops there. But I'd like to talk about, speaking of cover crops and feeding over the winter, nice thing about cover crops is they have a little different timing than most of our traditional grasses as far as getting some productivity. But a, a lot of folks, if, you've, if you're saving replacement heifers, and this is one as we think about getting them prepared for breeding. So let's work through the scenario that we calved in the spring, we weaned in the fall. Right now we're feeding those heifers to get them bred around yearling age a little bit after so that they calve as a two-year-old, right? So we're gonna get them bred by 14, 15 months of age. And what do you think, Philip or Brian, when we're, we're managing those heifers, what should our target be as far as what they should weigh at the time of breeding? It depends a little bit, Brad, on the breed composition. Some of the, what we call later maturing breeds, and maybe even if they've got a little bit of Indicus influence or Brahmin influence in them, then they need to be a little bit heavier as far as a percent of their mature body weight than if we were talking about earlier maturing breeds like Angus and Hereford. And so usually that target is 60 to 65% of what we think their mature body weight is gonna be. And the, the late maturing breeds toward the upper end of that and the, the early maturing breeds can be toward the lower end of that um, and still achieve uh, adequate uh, pregnancy rates on those heifers. Well, there's a, and there's a trade-off there in the research that would show you get to 65%. I have a much larger, even accounting for some of your breed differences, you mentioned, I have a much larger percent of those heifers that are ready to breed, but I spent more feeding them to get to that point. At 60%, I have a, a lower percent, but several of them should be ready depending on where they are, but it's at that percent body weight. So Brian, if I'm, if I'm planning that out and, and let's just take a scenario and say, I'm planning to get the heifers to weigh 750 pounds by the time of breeding. And I have back calculated and I need them to gain a pound and a quarter, a pound point 
four per day. How do I, how do I monitor that as I go through this period of time between weaning and breeding? Yeah. I mean, so you balance two things, right? You balance the accuracy of my measurement with the ease of my measurement. So, um, I mean, most people use one of two systems. They'll either use a, a visual estimate of body weight and that might include body condition scoring the, or, or they're using a scale, right? And so if you're using a scale, I mean, obviously there's a lot of logistics involved with running everybody through, um, certainly can be done. Um, and it, in some ways, you know, if you've got good handling technique, that's probably a pretty low stress event. We're not spending time in the shoot. We're just running through, grabbing a quick weight and we're out. Um, so there, there actually are some positive benefits to that handling, although, you know, and we've, we've talked a ton on this show recently about labor issues. It, it, it does involve more work. So, um, if you're asking me, um, I, I, I'm a big fan of the scale. Um, I think, you know, there, there's just what we're talking about are some pretty fine degrees of separation of weight gain. And it's pretty easy for somebody, even that's really experienced to be off by 50 to hundred pounds. And that, that makes a huge difference when you're talking about 750 pounds. So, um, and, and it's, uh, the other thing that we're doing is it's, we're talking, we're, we're measuring this on a herd basis, but we also need to know the individuals. And I think it's really easy to catch the ones at the extreme ends. Uh, but when you start getting in into those kind of moderate, mo either moderately thin or moderately heavy to where now's the time to interact and maybe manage them differently, that that what you get from your information from a scale is is probably worth that time. Well, I think you're absolutely right, Brian. It's a great point to to just weigh them and get those individual weights, because what if I'm behind Philip? What, what do I do if I if I weigh them today and I say, oh, man, I was expecting them to weigh. 650 today and they're weighing 600 pounds what, what are my options i mean i guess maybe two options one that you probably really don't like is you push back your breeding season to give them more time but then that's yep, not i really be don't like that one. <laughs> that was not going to really get you what you want the other option is you got to change the ration you gotta you're probably gonna have to either find some higher quality hay or and or you're going to have to increase the amount of supplemental feed that you're giving those heifers to get them to gain a little bit more. Um, and so, you know, calculate out how many days have you got left, how much additional weight gain per day do they need, and then figure out with your local nutritionist, county extension person, veterinarian, how much additional supplemental feed you're going to need to get them to gain that additional weight each day to get them to the target on time. Yeah, and I think spot on. You're better better off to know that now than when we get to breeding and they turn up not bred. Mm -hmm. And but I think and there's an so I think what Philip is answering the question for the situation where the whole herd is behind, right? And so now you've got to get everybody back up. But if you do this right, you might be able to yeah. find okay, I've got some that are over conditions and some are under conditioned, and so I may not need to go out and buy better, higher quality feed for everybody. I just may be able to, I might be, and I, again, there's, there's downsides to doing this, but if I can split my herd, I can feed the higher quality hay that I already own 
to the ones that are behind and maybe feed a little lower quality forage to the ones that are a little bit ahead. And now I've managed my group without buying a whole bunch of extra feed resources. Obviously I've put resources into to running two herds. Yeah. And but sometimes that's really valuable in that I may not have to go get additional feed. If I segregate some of those light calves, I can feed them a little closer to their body weight, feed them a little more. Cause a lot of times we know there's social hierarchies there, right? We know there's some things that will, that will change in that group. Sorry, Philip, I cut you off. Oh, that's all right. I think that's a good point, Brian, in that, you know, it, it's real easy. You look at a group of calves and they look pretty uniform, but it's pretty easy to have a 200 pound range within that group of calves. And so if you're going to take the time to weigh them, it, it very well be worth your time to go ahead and sort them and and feed the lighter ones a little more to get them up to where they should be by the time breeding starts and and probably even use just the same amount of feed you wouldn't even you just shift it from one group to the other and not have any additional feed cost yeah excellent so so one of the other things and as you guys talk through the key the key take home there is if i get a weight i can come up with a plan right i can figure out what what my plan is to go forward and, and speaking of plans, I think it's also important. And we talked a little bit about calf disease previously. And Brian, one of the things that comes up when we have sick calves, especially newborn calves or relatively new calves, and they have scours, we know dehydration can be an issue. And I've got a couple different ways to correct that. One, I could I could give them some oral fluids if they if they need uh, a little bit of a correction. Or in more severe cases. I may need to have somebody come out and give them IV fluids to supplement and change their, their intake. How do I kind of make some of those decisions and what's the thought process look like in coming up with that plan? Yeah. And, and actually, Brad, I'm going to throw in a third option for you that, <clears throat> so um, most, I'd say the vast majority of producers, if not all can do oral fluids. And when you go to IV fluids, um, there, you're a much smaller group of producers that can do that without some assistance. There is a range in there somewhere where we can do some subcutaneous fluids too, which is a, it's, it's more absorption than we get with oral, especially in cases of dehydration, but we've got more producers that can probably do that. And so really understanding what stage of dehydration we're in can help you decide which of those three options is probably the best for that particular case. So, um, and there are different ways that, that people will kind of grade the dehydration of an individual calf. Um, there, there really are kind of five indicators that we can use to assess dehydration. And most people will use more than one of these. And so if you're working with a veterinarian, most people are, are probably, uh, at least in some parts of the country, some people are into calving season. Uh, most people are probably on the, on the verge of starting if they already haven't. Um, if you're talking about, you know, what are we going to do with these, these dehydrated calves when they come? Because we'll, we'll get some. Um, the, the indicators would be uh, overall calf attitude. And so we think about, you know, is the calf up? Um, is he nursing? Um, or is he is he down? He's maybe he's bright and alert. So he's paying attention to what's going on around him, but he's not really willing to get up at this point, or is he just completely flat out? Um, <clears throat> the other thing 
Um, so I mentioned attitude, um, suckling. I think I kind of mentioned that together with there too, but you know, is he able to suckle or not? So, um, if he's up and suckling, you know, what's his suckle reflex. So that doesn't necessarily just mean nursing, but one of the things we can do to assess the suckle is to, you know, actually take a finger, put it in the calf's mouth. And is there any sort of suckle reflex there at all? Does he suck on your finger? Is there just nothing? Um, and, and obviously as we go from something to nothing, uh, for attitude, if we go from bright and alert to flat out, we're getting more and more dehydrated. Uh, the other thing people will look at is the, the sunkenness of the eyeballs. So as a calf becomes dehydrated, um, their actual, their eyeball actually starts to kind of pull inward and you'll see a gap between the kind of the eyelid surface and then the eyeball itself. Um, <clears throat> Some people go as far as actually doing physical measurements of that. I think that's probably a little more precision than we need. Um, basically, I would just kind of grade sunkenness as, is, is it non-existent or slight? Um, is there a little bit more separation between the eyeball? And then we get to those very severely dehydrated calves and the extremes where um, <clears throat> the eyeball is, is really, really sunken in. One of the other things we can look at, so the fourth thing we could look at would be um, what's called skin tint. And so calves have, um, they have a lot of elastic tissues in their skin. And so what a skin tint is, is we kind of pinch up the skin and we hold it. And then when we release it, that skin in a, in a well-hydrated calf, that skin should snap back into place. Um, and there's no evidence that <clears throat> you, had, you had picked up the skin there at all. Um, as calves become more dehydrated, uh, the, the length of time that it takes for that tissue to snap back into place becomes longer and longer. So um, in, a, in a normal or slightly dehydrated calf, you may get a, ten, a skin 10 of a couple seconds. Um, as calves become moderately dehydrated, you know, it could last you know, four to five, up to 10 seconds. And if you have a skin tint that's, you know, you pinch it up and it just stays there and it takes more than 10 seconds to respond, to kind of snap back into place. That's a severely dehydrated calf. And then the last thing we look at are the mucous membranes. Um, and depending on what breed of calf you have, this can, can be a little more difficult because of the coloration, but there's, there's actually a couple things we can look at with the gum or the, the mucous membranes, which is typically the gums. Um, we can actually just feel those. And so a, a slightly dehydrated or normally hydrated calf, they'll, their mucous membranes will be moist, um, they'll be wet. Um, as they become more and more dehydrated, they become that become sticky and dry. So they lose fluids and uh, their gum tissue will feel sticky. Um, if you have a, a calf with <clears throat> um, a lighter tint to its skin. It's hard to do this with uh, calves that have black tinted mucous membranes, but if you have one that has a has pink on its mucous membranes, you can actually press on those mucous membranes. And as you release it, it'll blanch out, it'll be white. And then as you release, um, it's called capillary refill time. So um, in, a, in a normal or uh, slightly dehydrated calf, um, that should it should turn back to pink almost instantly. And then again, kind of with the skin tint, the more dehydrated they become, the longer it takes to go back to normal. Great tips there, Brian, for how we assess. And, and as you said, sometimes the ends of the spectrum are easy, right? If he's up, he's nursing, he's got a good attitude. We don't need to do anything. If he is down and out, we for sure need to do something, but it's the grades in between. One of the things about the dehydration, especially with scours, their status can change relatively rapidly, right? You can go from 
he's doing okay to now he doesn't look so good. However, don't let that be discouraging because with some fluids, even those calves that are down and out, some of them can really make a turnaround. So really important to have that fluid therapy. And just like you said, we want to assess that. So we appreciate you joining us. And I realized we talked about, we, we would touch on old world blue stem. We will do that in our next episode. So thanks. And if you have any questions, comments, anything you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.